This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Danielle Sarad, Executive Director of Common Justice, an organization dedicated to finding solutions to violence that transform the lives of those harms and foster racial equality without relying on incarceration. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So could you tell us a little bit about how Common Justice got started? Sure. I think there are two different ways to tell the story. The first is that is through the lens of thinking about the project of ending mass incarceration in America. So America locks up more people than any nation in the world in all of human history. And efforts to end mass incarceration have largely focused on nonviolent offenses. So drug related crimes, property crimes, those sorts of things. But the problem is that more than half of people who are locked up in the United States are locked up for crimes of violence. And so that means that if we don't take on the question of violence, we'll never reduce mass incarceration by more than half. Um, at my best estimate, the day I was born, there were 443,850 people locked up in the United States. They're in the neighborhood of 2.3 million today, which means even a 50% reduction concedes a threefold increase in our lifetime. I mean, for those of us who understand mass incarceration as in a continuous legacy with its predecessors like convict leasing and Jim Crow and slavery, um, that kind of durability of that system is intolerable. And there's no way out of it other than by addressing violence. But the problem with addressing violence, unlike addressing those other kinds of crimes, is with drug crimes, you can sort of say the criminal justice system is just the wrong system to deal with this. Like health systems should care for it. and we should leave people alone about a lot of the things we criminalize. With violence, you can't just look away from it, right? You can't just fully withdraw when people are shooting or stabbing or harming one another in ways that violate not only the law, but our moral codes about how to live with one another. And so it was my belief that if we wanted to displace our use of mass incarceration to address violence, that we would have to build something that we could do in its place. And common justice is that. But the other doorway into common justice is not actually through the question of mass incarceration at all, but through the question of what crime survivors need. So I know this as a survivor of violence myself and as someone who's worked with survivors of violence for decades. Crime survivors, we want to say in the response to what happens to us, we want an outcome that actually produces justice. And our bottom line is usually that we cannot abide the thought of being hurt again or of others going through what we went through. The problem is that mass incarceration never can keep the promise of safety. High recidivism rates and all sorts of analysis about what causes violence demonstrate that to us. And so it means even if we didn't care about all the people locked up in our country, even if we didn't care about the history to which that practice is tied, if the only people we cared about were crime survivors, we would still face a moral demand to develop new solutions to violence that aren't just prisons 
and to develop solutions that can actually deliver on the promise of safety in ways prison never will. And could you expand a little bit about the history of incarceration in the United States? Sure. So incarceration as we know it, the scale of incarceration as we know it is a relatively new phenomenon, really uh, in the last 40 years. Um, And over the course of that time, um, we've made a series of policy decisions where we have decided to address social ills, economic ills, political problems, and all sorts of other things by putting people in prisons. We've done that um, for a variety of motivations. For some people, it's been entirely motivated by opportunities for profit. For others, it has been motivated by a desperate grasp at some solution that might actually keep themselves and others safe. Um, so the sort of morality of the intentions run a really wide spectrum. But a lot of those forces converge to align around a practice of responding to broken laws and to harm through jail. That practice doesn't is not without precedent. So when I talk about the link, and Michelle Alexander is one of the people who brought this to our national attention, but it's long been in the knowledge and story, particularly people who have lived in these systems, um, that shortly after the end of slavery in the United States, a system called convict leasing developed. And it were, there were times where people would be arrested for things like vagrancy. Um, like you could be arrested for not having a job. Um, you could be arrested for littering, for any number of lower level infractions. And you would be required to pay a fine that was often an impossible amount of money for people to pay. And then you would be allowed or required to work to pay off that fine because you would be incarcerated until you had. And so if you didn't have the means to pay your way out of it, your only way out was through labor. And very often people were then, quote unquote, leased back to the very same plantations that they, or in some cases, their parents had been freed from um, just earlier than that in our history. And so in that, you see a continuity between a system of enslavement and a system of punishment that's persisted through our history. Um, and continues to infect incarceration as we know it. And could you tell us a little bit more about these alternatives you're talking about? We take violence extraordinarily seriously. So we believe that when someone causes harm, we owe something. Um, like those of us who hurt another person have an obligation to repair that harm to the degree possible. And that obligation is rooted in our human dignity, so it never goes anywhere even if we ourselves have been through extraordinary pain, even if our circumstances were terrible, still the fact that we hurt somebody else requires us to try to repair it. We believe that people who cause harm owe that, and we believe that people who are harmed deserve it. The problem is that incarceration has basically nothing to do with repair, um, and in fact is actually a very dangerous approach to resolving violence. So I'm in the business of ending violence, And those of us in this business know that the four core drivers of violence on an individual level are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. The four core features of prison are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. It means we've baked into the system we use to respond to violence exactly the things that generate it. That is not what a society that wants to be safe does. 
Similarly, we've made a mistake of equating punishment and accountability. And the two, in fact, couldn't be more different. Over time, I've come to believe they're not only not the same, but in many ways, they're actually incompatible. So punishment is passive. Punishment is something that is done to you. All you have to do to be punished is not evade or escape it. Accountability is different. Accountability requires that you acknowledge what you've done, that you acknowledge the impact of your actions on others, that you express genuine remorse, that you make things as right as possible, ideally in a way defined by those who you've hurt, and that you become someone who will never cause that kind of harm again. The work of accountability is some of the hardest work any of us will ever do. And in part because of the features of prison I described, prison is a terrible place for accountability. It's not conducive to reflection. It's not conducive to repair. It's not conducive to connection. It's not conducive to basic things like earning enough money to pay restitution. So from the most philosophical to the most pragmatic dimensions of it, prison becomes a barrier to accountability. The problem is that it is accountability that transforms people who have caused harm into people who won't. And it is accountability that makes an extraordinary contribution to the healing of people who've been hurt. So at Common Justice, we do accountability. Um, people, if we get the consent of the district attorney and the victim in the case of serious violence, we bring together, after extensive preparation, uh, the people who caused the harm with those they hurt. We're in a process together. They acknowledge the impact of those actions and reach agreements as to how the responsible person can make things as right as possible. That responsible person then fulfills the full range of those commitments, which may include education, community service, restitution, wide range of other things particular to the case. And at the same time, they go through an intensive violence intervention program that we've developed at Common Justice. If they're successful in that program and complete those agreements, then they don't go to prison and the felonies are removed from their records. And in the meantime, we provide wraparound services to the victims of their crimes. Um, to support them in what can happen to them um, and in their lives generally. And what exactly does it mean and look like to advocate for justice completely outside of prison? For me, it's um, it's actually, it's interesting. People assume that, you know, I said we only take cases if the victims of crime consent. It's important to remember that fewer than half of victims call the police in the first place, which is actually, I think, one of the most damning indictments of our criminal justice system out there. It means more than half of people who experience serious harm prefer nothing to everything the system has on offer. Another half of those cases won't even make it to grand jury, so they'll drop off in those first couple weeks after an, after an incident occurs. And it's those remaining people, people who persisted with a criminal justice system that promises prison. It's those people we ask, do you want the person who hurt you in common justice or do you want that person in prison? And 90% of those survivors, 90% choose common justice. And when I first saw that trend almost a decade ago now, or I guess more than a decade ago now, my first thought was to think human beings were just better than I had thought we were, that we were more compassionate, that we were more generous, that we thought, but for the grace of God, go I, that we believe in transformation, all of those things. And while some of those things are true, I think the reason that so many people said yes was something that I should have known as a crime survivor myself. So survivors, you know, we will feel fear so all-encompassing 
that even when we are in our own homes in the arms of the people we love most and with whom we are safest, we will still tremble with fear and quake with nightmares through the night because of what happened to us. And we will feel lost so deep that we will want to like wring out our bones in case the pain is stored in the marrow and we could be rid of it. And we will feel rage so profound that it makes us unrecognizable even to ourselves. And the one thing that almost all the time coexists with but really outranks all those things in us is that we are pragmatic. That at the end of the day, we want the thing that will make us safe and that will prevent others from going through what we went through. And the hardest people to persuade that incarceration can produce that kind of safety are people who live in neighborhoods where incarceration is common. They've lived with the failure of that experiment. Like they have paid the price with their own suffering. And so their embrace of an alternative is not usually philosophical. It's not usually about wanting to end mass incarceration. Their embrace of an alternative, I've compared it to like, if you imagine you suffered debilitating migraines for 15 years and nothing made them better. And somebody came to you and said, there's a relatively experimental new drug with really promising outcomes and really limited side effects. It's new, but if you want to, you can try it. If you tried it, it's not because you're interested in pharmacological experimentation. You try it because the pain you're experiencing is unendurable, because the status quo is intolerable, and because something different then becomes the pragmatic choice, not the visionary one. And so I think one of the things that's really important when we think about advocating for alternatives outside the system is to not forget that many of the key stakeholders in that fight, the people whose lives are at stake in that fight, the people who will fight hardest for it and benefit most from it, are not just the people who won't serve prison terms or the people who know and love them, but are the very survivors of the crimes we're talking about. And when you mention how policing represents the failures of these systems, what exactly is common justice's approach to policing and ideology on how the police fit into the system? So we we come into the system long after policing. So we the point at which we intervene is the point um, where we're operating alongside um, the court system um, run in many ways by prosecutors and then in place of the prison system that follows it. Um, and so our work is not about policing. What we do know is that that matters to all of this that and is often lost in conversations about policing is that um, the same kind of biases that generate such disproportionate racial outcomes of policing, disproportionate arrests, disproportionate charging, all of that, those things don't stop when we're talking about the victims of crime. So in the same way, Black and brown defendants will have a different experience of police all too often than white defendants will. Black and brown victims will also have a different experience of police. And so for people who themselves have a negative experience with police or their relatives and loved ones have, those experiences are not always when they are suspected of crimes. Those experiences are often at times where they have sought help and been met with hostility. And so in one of our cases, a young man was shot at in a public park and he ran for his life. And he hid under the porch of a house and eventually he went to the precinct to report the crime, knowing that after doing that, he would have to leave and maybe never come back because the police would not be able to keep him safe from retaliation. 
And when he went into the precinct and he said, I was shot in the park. My baby sister was there. I don't know where she is. And I know who did it. The first question he was asked was, where's your gun? He said, what? The officer said, well, he didn't shoot you for nothing. Right? That deep presumption that we talk all the time about how that assumption affects how we sentence people who commit crime. But we have to be very clear that like racism doesn't end when someone is standing in a different position. And so the harm that causes to communities, the harm it causes to survivors, and the harm it causes to us as a democratic society as a whole, I don't think we can underestimate or understate. And so do you believe that policing has any place in a just system? I mean, I think, so for, I'll reiterate that we don't work on policing. Like that is, it's not what we do. And so um, that's, common kind of justice doesn't have, we don't take positions about policing and it's not what our work is. Um, and, but I will say that it depends a great deal on what we mean by policing, right? That there are certain practices that are common among police that I don't think have any place in any just society. And the notion that the government assumes some responsibility for the safety of its citizens, I think in the near term, certainly is going to continue to be the reality. But the truth is that most of how we're kept safe is not about law enforcement at all. It's not about police. It's not about prosecutors. It's not about prison. And so we do an exercise often where we'll ask people, um, and you could do it right now, to imagine a time and place where you felt safe. It doesn't have to be a whole period of your life. It can be one moment, one time, one occasion. The place where you felt safe. And I've done this in rooms of a dozen people, in rooms of 500 people. And when we ask for examples, people will often say, like, at my grandmother's house or when my mother came home from work or um, with that one teacher after school or those sorts of things. Not once in all the contexts where we've done this has anybody said an answer like when the police arrive or because of prisons or when somebody is on parole, that the things that produce safety are relationships. Um, that's what keeps us whole and safe. And part of the problem with incarceration is that it's very nature incarceration suffers relationships. Its whole point is to take people away from other people. That's what it does most and most base level. And so when we understand that people and neighborhoods co-produce safety with one another, um, that they're produced in context of community and relationship, then our ideas of where we should be investing resources to generate safety become fundamentally different. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, 
I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Something we hear a lot from politicians is the dangers of for-profit prisons. Of course, you have been focusing on the dangers of prisons at large, but why exactly have for-profit prisons exploded in such a big way? So I think it's really, there's a couple different ways to understand profit and incarceration. Um, The narrowest are prisons that are operated by for-profit corporations. So New York State, for example, doesn't have any such prisons. Um, other parts of the country absolutely do, where the states will hire corporations to run their correctional systems, and those systems will make huge profits off of it. But at the same time, even in states where the prisons are run by the state and not by a private corporation, there are phone companies that charge $12 connecting fees for every single call from prison and have a literal monopoly. There are the companies that provide food to the cafeterias. There are the companies that provide supplies to the commissaries that people buy at anywhere from three to 20 times what they would cost in a regular store where free people could shop. There are the companies that do the laundry for the prisons, all of those things. And they're all the employees who work in those prisons. And so even when we're not talking about for-profit prisons, um, the amount of the sheer number of people who benefit financially from the scale of incarceration is enormous and far-reaching, and we underestimate it if we only look specifically at privately operated prisons. Part, one of the biggest places we see the expansion of private prisons um, is in the immigration realm. So a huge portion of federal detention is contracted out to private entities, and I think it's increasingly clear to people who are invested in ending mass incarceration in America that we have to be thinking about immigrant detention, not only about incarceration as punishment for other kinds of crimes, um, because the immigration and in places where the system of incarceration narrowly writ may be shrinking, the immigration detention system is growing at extraordinary speeds to more than make up for the shrinkage that we're accomplishing in the reforms in the criminal justice framework. And do you believe that capitalism is a core problem here? Yeah, I mean, sure. I would also nominate white supremacy for a front-runner problem, um, though those two are certainly um, have been close friends for a very long time. Um, and so understanding like structures, and the, I, mean, I think the easiest place to see the intersection of those two is in slavery, where literally we develop a framework where we regard people of color as property, right? Where we translate human freedom into money concretely. When we look at that, the, the linkages are extraordinarily apparent. And then if we look over time to find when those things become decoupled, it's hard to find a moment we could point to um, where they don't remain totally and inextricably and why is it that we don't see politicians who are talking about for-profit prisons and mass incarceration making these connections and advocating for a just system rather than 
a reformed version of an oppressive system. So I think, um, I think there's a, a really interesting place to look at that question is, um, in, in prosecutor elections, which are the ones that are most clearly about criminal justice. Uh, and we've had a wave of more progressive prosecutors elected in the last couple of years who have run on reform platforms. They're still not platforms that like fundamentally, like many of them don't explicitly say classism or they don't say capitalism and white supremacy, but many of them do talk about structural racism. Uh, and they do talk about bias and they do talk about history. And I think what's really important and part of why we don't see more of that broadly in politics is that politicians are responsive to their constituents. And so among these newly elected progressive prosecutors, there are some who've been elected by the same people who have been voting for many years, whom they persuaded to vote differently. I think those prosecutors will be reformist and they'll be fine. Like they'll do a better job than their predecessors. And it probably won't be earth shatteringly different. And then there are prosecutors who won their campaigns by campaigning to different constituencies and particularly by campaigning to constituencies whose lives are at stake in the outcome. And so who went into communities of color where levels of violence are high and sat with the members of that community and developed bases in those communities who then elected them into office. And when that happens, those politicians are differently answerable. Politicians will never step far out ahead of their constituents. They can't. That's how they lose their jobs in a, even in a functioning democracy. So the thing I think is most transformative is when people win by organizing, when people win by drawing out new voters or unlikely voters or voters who have had no reason to vote for years because the two candidates were functionally the same in terms of its, their impact on their lives. And in campaigns that actually animate people whose lives are at stake in the issues to come out and vote, it not only means new people can win, but it means those people are accountable to the people who will live or die based on the decisions they make. And so I think when we think about politics as being about persuasion, we miss the point. Like politics is about power. Uh, and in the, rem the remnants of our democracy that we're living in, there's still an extraordinary amount of power that comes from organized people. And of course, you are not an electoral organization. But do you think that the 2018 midterms have any impact on the hope of justice reform? So, I mean, I think elections are important and that elections themselves are never adequate. And so I think the thing that is most promising um, about the midterms is are really the places where those victories have been the product of the animation of a different group of people who have previously not been regarded seriously by their elected officials. And so for me, in the places where that happened, it it's a at least in those local contexts, a resuscitation of some actual like democratic process. And that I think is real basis for hope. And so it's not just about um, what somebody's platform is. It's about who they will answer to because who they will answer to is a far better predictor of how they will behave and vote than what their platform was. And going into 2019, what actions is your organization focusing on? What strategies are you taking? So the central piece of our work is that we 
operate the only alternative to incarceration for serious violence in America in the adult system. There's other work happening in the juvenile system, but in the adult system, this is a real, it's a breakthrough practice, and it's a practice that stands to challenge the notion that violence is out of reach of criminal justice reform, that people will not support transformative responses even to the most serious harm, that crime survivors are always going to be advocates of draconian sentencing as opposed to advocates of pragmatic solutions that produce safety. And so we continue to expand that work, um, to deepen it, to like in the day-to-day work to transform the lives of the people we touch directly. And then we're engaging people around the country in a broader conversation about how to advance healing equity, how to ensure that everybody who is harmed has access to the kind of care they deserve um, to come through that pain. And so some of the solutions for that are about social services, some are about policy. And so across the country, Healing Works, the network that we operate, um, is joining together people who have that commitment to healing equity. And then finally, we're working to tell different stories. We know that, you know, that politics is downstream from culture. And that the stories we tell about who commits violence, about who's hurt by it, about what they want, about what actually makes them safe, that those stories shape our beliefs of what is appropriate and possible when it comes to practice and policy. And so we can do all the work we want to around practice and policy. And if we're not also coming for those stories, we're never going to move very far. And so we're doing a lot of work to try and tell fuller, more complete, more honest stories about what causes violence, what heals violence, what stands to end it in our lifetimes. And what can our listeners do to join this cause? So our listeners can definitely sign up and connect with us at commonjustice.org. There are a variety of ways as people with the, who share those commitments to participate in their local context, to participate in the amplification of these stories nationally, um, to learn about and build comparable work where they are. Um, And people can also sit with the people they love most, Um, that our stories about violence are so intimate and so difficult that very often the people who can transform us and open our minds to possibilities other than just those we've known are the people we know and trust. And so the conversations that we're inclined to have on public stages or even on Facebook, um, Listeners can have those conversations at the family dinner table, too, and to have those conversations with the relatives who are most opposed to it and who are most hurt by these issues um, so that we move each other through relationship. We have to do that both on really broad scales where we join with one another in large social movements to affect change. um, And we also can't join those movements at the expense of sitting with those we know and doing the hard, intimate labor of transformation um, where we live in. And lastly, where can folks find you online and connect? We're at commonjustice.org. And we're also um, on Twitter at We Are Common Just and on Facebook as Common Justice. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and telling us about your work. We hope to catch up with you in the future to hear about all the progress you've made. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Of course. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics Podcast by subscribing on iTunes, following us on social media, and tuning into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes.
Thanks for listening.